Acts chapter 13. It says, In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind, and for a time you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. There is a uh, book by author Paul Tripp. I don't know if you're familiar with any of Paul Tripp's writings. Uh, They're great. You should read anything you can by him. But he he wrote a book uh, entitled Dangerous Calling. And it's it's really a book written to pastors and people in in professional sort of vocational ministry about the, the kind of soul dangers that happen when you're a pastor. Um, uh, for instance, one of the dangers he talks about in this book is what he calls the danger of arrival. It's the danger of thinking that because you have become a pastor, because you're on a church staff now, that you've somehow arrived spiritually, that, that you're all there. You know, well, now I'm a pastor, so I must have arrived, and there's no more growing to do, which, of course, is ridiculous, <laughs> because the entire Christian life should be a continual process of growing in holiness and growing in Christ-likeness. But, but sometimes, you know, you can get this idea in ministry that like, well, I, I have these sins in my life that I'm still struggling with, or I have these places in my character where I need to keep growing in the Lord, but I, I, I shouldn't have that because I'm a pastor now. And so, so pastors can sometimes lead these bifurcated lives where there's an exterior that's projected of, uh, you know, I've got it all together, but inside they're struggling, but they don't know what to do with that. And so, you know, Paul Tripp, in a very kind of prophetic way, just nails that issue. And uh, it's really uh, helpful. But, you know, I don't think that the danger of arrival is just a pastoral issue. I think that's a challenge for all Christians. We can all think that we've arrived at different points in our Christian lives. Maybe it is like becoming an elder in a church, or I become a deacon, or I'm a Bible study leader now, and we think, well, now I've arrived. Or maybe uh, some of you are in the membership process at our church and have just become members, and you think, well, now I'm a church member, so now I've arrived, and I sort of have a level of togetherness, right? You know, I, I can't struggle anymore against sin and struggle in other ways. 
Uh, or, or maybe I've become a Christian now, so I've arrived, right? The journey's done. <laughs> no, the journey's just begun. And, and so we, there's this danger. But the reality is that the whole Christian life is one where we have to keep praying every day, Lord, search me and know my heart. See if there be any offensive way in me. Lord, keep purifying me. Or as uh, this is an old analogy many preachers have used, but it's, it's like if God is the light, the closer we get to God and the closer we come into the light, the more clearly we can see our imperfections and our flaws. And so greater knowledge of God leads to a greater knowledge of what God still needs to do inside of us. But I not only think there's a danger of a rival for pastors and for all Christians, I also think there's perhaps a corporate dimension to this, that a church as a whole congregation can be in danger of a rival. That a church can think, well, we, we're kind of there, you know, we've got a Got a good church, we've got a building, we've got a pastor we like, good youth program, music's nice, I like it, I'm happy. You know, we, we've arrived. We've got it together as a church. And there's a danger because God has not only called us to be healthy, vibrant churches, yes, that's true, but the church is also called to this mission beyond the walls of the church. To, to take the gospel beyond the walls of the church to the regions around us. That's what we've been studying throughout the whole book of Acts. You, you know, that, that uh, you think about it this way. Think about it like a stance, right? A stance, a balanced stance on both legs. It should be balanced. And think of one leg as being a healthy church that is functioning well and biblically and preaching God's word. But the other leg is, and this this look beyond the walls of the church to people who don't know the Lord and this desire to bring the gospel beyond the walls of our church. And you kind of need both, right? And I think there's a danger sometimes for churches to get off balance and you know, be content and complacent with what's going on inside but lose that other, that other leg and that other foot. But here's the good news. God doesn't let us stay in the delusion of arrival. God has a way of pushing us on in our faith. And sometimes he does it by kind of wooing us gently and speaking to us and and calling to us to keep growing and keep searching after him. And sometimes he sends crises into our lives where things explode, things that we thought were all together and we thought, I'm all set, I finally arrived. And God's like, really? And boom, it gets blown up and then suddenly... I need to grow. And, and so crises, God uses crises and pain and suffering to propel us to further growth in him. Well, that's what we're looking at today here in Acts chapter 13. We're, we're looking at this push beyond the walls of the church, God sending new people out, this new mission that's starting. The church had not arrived. There was still more work to do, just as there is today. So let's look at this text Acts chapter 13, a little more closely. Here we, we are in Antioch, and we start off with these uh, leaders in the church, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, Lucius, Menaean, and Saul, of course. And they're praying, and they're fasting, and they're seeking the Lord. And the Holy Spirit in the midst of that says, verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, so where we are now is we're in Antioch, not Jerusalem. The story of Acts starts in Jerusalem, and you know the story. A church is born in Jerusalem, and it grows, and, and the gospel is being preached, and lots of people come to that church, and, 
and, and there's powerful things going on in that church. It's a great church, but, but they kind of get complacent. They, they, they think, I don't know if they think that we would say they've arrived, but they're sort of happy with their church in Jerusalem. But God has also told them, you need to take this gospel to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so they're not going out. They're just kind of being a happy church. And so what does God allow to happen to that church in Acts? Persecution. He sends this guy named Saul to come and start persecuting the church. And so people scatter. There's persecution. People are being thrown in jail. And as a result, that church now is sort of forced dramatically through crisis, to start going out into the world. And as these dispersed Christians walk into the world they, uh, and they go out, then they start telling other people about Jesus. And some of those dispersed Christians go all the way up to Antioch, which was a city, right? If you think about the, the eastern Mediterranean coast where Jerusalem was, and then when it, it sort of takes a, a sharp uh, left-hand turn and, and there's Turkey sort of jutting out in the Mediterranean, right there at that elbow is where Antioch was. And so some of those dispersed Jerusalem Christians make it to Antioch and they start preaching about Jesus. And lo and behold, people start believing. There's, it's working. Christians are, people are coming to Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. So they, they establish a new church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas and Barnabas gets Saul and the two of them start teaching that church and establishing that church. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, if you remember. This is how the gospel spreads. People go People tell others about Jesus. Other people believe in Jesus. A church is established. It's built up, and then that church sends out. That's how the gospel has always spread down through the centuries. That's how it made it to Hingham, is, is this multiplication pattern in, in local churches. And, and so we, we see it here in Antioch, and now there they are. A new church in Antioch. They've arrived. It's perfect. You got a church in Jerusalem, and the Jewish capital, and you got a church in Antioch, which at that time was the, like the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Wonderful. I mean, they're done, right? Big capital Jewish city, big Gentile city. Churches in both places. You know, and now if you want to hear the gospel in the Roman Empire, just go to Antioch. It's over there. Just go to that, that town, and you'll hear the gospel. They've arrived, right? No. The Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. We're not done yet. We haven't arrived. The gospel needs to go further. And so there's this propelling outward that, that is from the Holy Spirit himself. How do they hear this from the Holy Spirit? I don't know, but I would assume it was some of the prophets who were there. But, but the bottom line is it's God pushing them out. I sometimes wonder what it must have been like to, as I was studying this passage, what would it have been like to be in the church in Antioch and to hear from the Holy Spirit that Paul and Barnabas need to get going? I wonder if everyone in the church of Antioch was psyched about that or if there may have been some reservations. Because at this point, the church is probably a year at most too old. This is still a very new church. The cement is still wet, okay? There's still people being, coming to faith in Jesus. They're still needing to be taught. And Paul and Barnabas have been there a year teaching. And, and Paul and Barnabas, uh, you know, they're kind of like, think about it this way. They're like the senior pastor and a lead associate pastor in the church teaching the church. And they've been building this church up. 
And now all of a sudden, like, they haven't been there that long in this brand new church, and the Holy Spirit says, all right, I want your senior pastor and your associate pastor to go. Like, I don't know. I, I think I might be like, are you sure? <laughs> like, is this wise? You mean like go in like three or four years after they've been here building us up a little bit more? Maybe send them off in a while? Like, really? Ready to go? Look, I mean, the, the cement is still wet. The people are still coming in from pagan religions. They're still just learning this Christian life. Why would you send them? Isn't there someone else you can send? But when the Holy Spirit says go, you go. And you follow. And, and so these guys are being sent out. It, you know, the thing is, there's never a perfect time to go out and do the work of the gospel. If you're waiting for everything to be all settled in your life or in your church before you can go out and start sharing the gospel with others, it's never going to happen. I had a, uh, when I was thinking about going into the ministry, uh, I had a, a wise old pastor who was pastoring the church where I uh, had come to faith in Jesus in back out in the Las Vegas area. And I was talking to him about church ministry once. And he said, you know, Jeremy, I've been in a lot of churches, pastored in different contexts, large churches, small churches. He says, here's one thing I found out about pastoring in churches. Nothing, it, you'll never have a time in the church where everything is working out perfectly all over the church. There's always going to be a problem somewhere. You know, today the youth ministry is great. Next week it, it falls apart. So you help the youth ministry. But then there's financial problems. So you lean into that. But then there's an issue with uh, Bible studies or whatever. And he says, you know, I just would, I'd run around the church leading and helping and fixing. And there's always something that wasn't working right. And, uh, and so he says, so you just know that. And I was like, well, thank you. That's encouraging, I guess. Uh, now that I'm thinking about going into pastoral ministry, but it's true. You never have a perfect church. You never have everything functioning smoothly. So, so if you're waiting for gospel, to do gospel ministry beyond the walls of the church, and you're waiting for everything to be functioning well inside the church, you're never going to get there. Even our lives, you know, our li- it's like, okay, I'll, I'll be thinking about the gospel more and others when, when I get my life straightened out. But right now I've got this crisis and I've got that and my kid and then there's the job thing and like, okay, when do you think your life is going to be together and perfect to be a part of this? It never is. We just have to go as is. Weaknesses and all, there's never a perfect time to be about the work of telling others about Jesus and taking opportunities the Lord gives us. It's time to go. And so they... They didn't fall into the trap of arrival. They, they kept going, and when the Holy Spirit said, go, verse 3, they obeyed. They fasted, they prayed, they laid hands on them, they commissioned them, and they sent them off in obedience to the Holy Spirit. I can, of course, help as a pastor to read this pastor of a church and think about our own church and ask the question, is South Shore Baptist Church falling into the danger of arrival mentality? that we've sort of arrived, and I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I, I, I guess I would say, you know, I'll be conservative here. I guess I would say, I think we could be, we're definitely in danger of it. I don't know if we're there or not, but it certainly could happen easily here. You know, it's like, I love our church. I, it's, I love you guys. I love being here. I love the fellowship. I love the friendship. I love the music. I love, I, I love being in a church where... I preach from the Bible, and people are like, yeah, we want the Bible, we want Jesus, and we want to hear about the gospel. You know, I love this building. I love those windows, those archy windows. I just, every time I come in here, I just look at that. 
Kind of looks kind of like Star Wars to me. I like it. <laughs> I feel like I'm in a you know space station or something. I, I love this. I love this room. I love I love the staff I work with. I'm super happy. I don't know about you. And, it, and I think that's great. And, and there's our church is not perfect. At, of course, at all. There's all kinds of things we could tweak, whatever. But there's a general sense of health, and I'm like so happy here. But that's the danger, that you can just say, oh, isn't it great? And it can be an easy church for all of us just to come and kind of be and, and lose that urgency for the other foot. You know, again, if this is the balance, right, there's a danger that we can be like, oh, it's so comfortable, and then, whoosh, you know, we fall over that side. And it's possible to be unbalanced this way, too. I don't think that's our danger. I think it's the other way. And so, whether we're there or not, who knows? God knows. But, but I think that's a concern. Uh, recently, the, our elders uh, had a, a prayer retreat and a, uh, a retreat last weekend, actually, where they were praying and seeking the Lord about, you know, wh- where's our church going in the next five, ten years? We were sort of, you know, looking out, not looking at the immediate issues in the church, but like, where, what's our vision? What's our plan for the next five years? What's God calling us to? And it's interesting this, that, that we're studying these passages while this was going on with our elders. And I have to tell you, that was not planned. I didn't cause those to coincide. I'm not that good. I can't make that all happen. Just, it all sort of came together. And so we were like these guys, kind of. We were praying and studying the Bible, and saying, like, Lord, where do you want to take us? And as our elders were talking about Sasha Baptist Church, we were saying, you know, there's a lot of good stuff going on inside the church. This leg is, is pretty good, not perfect. There's more things we could tweak, but, but there's a lot of good going on there. And, you know, we're, we're sending missionaries to other countries, and that's good. But as we thought about the church, we said, you know, one of the places we see kind of a hole is that South Shore Regional Mission. This is our mission field on the South Shore. How are we doing there? And, and are we really, as, as a church, kind of leaning into how do we reach the South Shore? Are we thinking about planting churches? We've talked about it, but is there anything happening in that direction? Are we as a congregation kind of mobilized that way? And as we looked at our church, we said, you know, I think there's a heart in our congregation for evangelism, but we're not leading that way, and we're not intentionally sort of focused on that. So, so that's sort of where we're at. I and mean, we don't have a, a vision statement yet, but we're kind of like, this, we see this as a whole and as a focus for the next five years, perhaps. We're praying through that. That would mean changes. That would mean a different kind of focus, um, a, a different mentality. We, we would need to be thinking about how do we equip ourselves as a church to go and tell others about Christ. How, how do we do that? How do I do that? I think uh, there's always a danger and especially in the American church, it's been the case where, where instead of go and tell, we, we can sort of fall into the easier model of evangelism, which is come and see, right? That, you know, people in the pastors, we, we talk shop sometimes, and we have these th- terms we throw around. We, we sometimes talk about the difference between an attractional philosophy of ministry and a, a, a missional philosophy of ministry. Maybe you've never heard those terms before, but actually I'm pretty sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Attractional, this is the idea of attractional ministry. It goes like this. All right, the South Shore is our mission field. This is where we need to tell people about Jesus. How are we going to get the gospel to them? Well, what we need to do is have a lot of stuff going on inside the walls of the church that will attract people in. We need lots of programs, lots of events, lots of things happening, and, and we need to go out and be like, hey, Come to this thing in the church. Come to that thing in the church. Come to this thing. You know, it needs to be like a buffet. It needs to be like the, you know, the menu at Cheesecake Factory. 
just like, look at all the things, right? And uh, that thing needs an app with the menu. I'm telling you, it's like, whew, so much. And, and sometimes there's this idea that churches need to do that. They need lots of offerings, lots of opportunities, lots of things to invite people to. Um, and, and, you know, and that's how you reach people. Um, of course, there's some truth to that, right? Our church, our church should be attractive. You know what should be attractive about our church? The holiness of our lives and the quality of love in our relationships. That should be attractive. That should be peculiarly attractive. And of course we want people to come into our church. I mean, you could argue that we have an attractional event every week. It's called Sunday morning. Invite your friends. That's good. We want people to come. If you're here and uh, you're not normally a a person who comes to Usher Baptist Church, we're super glad you're here. I hope you were welcomed when you came in. Uh, There's a welcome table in the back when you go out. We want you to feel welcomed here. I hope when I preach, people who don't know much about theology or the Bible can understand what I'm talking about. I hope I'm talking in a way that regular people can get it. So yeah, we, we want to be attractional in that sense. And there are times when we want to do things to invite people in. The problem, there's some problems though with the attractional approach. And one is, it doesn't seem to be the way the gospel primarily spread in the book of Acts. It seems to be the way the gospel primarily spread in the book of Acts is that people went and told it wasn't come and see. There's some come and see. There's always that. But it was go and tell. That's what we see here in Acts 13. It was go and tell. And the way the gospel even got to Antioch was people went and told. Jesus' ministry was a go and tell ministry. He went and told. He traveled all over Israel. And then he took the 12 disciples and he sent them off two by two. And he said, go and tell. And then he got 72 disciples together and put them together two by two and said, go and tell, go and tell. And so that, that was the nature of how the gospel spread there and, and the, the way it's spreading today. And so there needs to be that go-and-tell model. I also think another problem with, with the attractional model is I think it's less effective in post-Christian cultures and post-Christian cultural contexts. It's more effective in Christianized cultures. So Christianized culture, like what America used to be like 40 years ago, 50 years ago, right? It still is a little bit in the Bible Belt, though that's changing too. But in a Christianized culture, even if you're not a Christian, like you know what the church is, you you understand why it's there, it's generally kind of positive. Ministers are still seen as people of respect and stature in in a Christianized culture. And and you think, well, you know, the the church is there to teach people. The church is there to help people. The church is there to create community among people. And so if a friend says to you, why don't you come to church, in a Christianized culture, you're like, okay, I might go to that event because I have those categories in my head of what church is for. But in a post-Christian culture, like ours is, especially here in New England, by all, all measures that are done today, it, it's post-Christian, and especially the millennial generation, super post-Christian and, and you start telling them, like, oh, come to church. We got this going on, this going on, this going on. They're just like, what? Church? Huh? I don't, why would you do that? There, there aren't even the categories there. So, so yeah, some people might come, but it, it starts to become a, a strategy of diminishing returns. Instead, we, we need to go and tell. And there's always exceptions, right? Like, here's an exception even in New England today, in post-Christian New England. Here's an exception. Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve still works as an attractional thing. Why? 
You know, it's because, well, even in New England, people still have this category in their head that Christmas is special. And one of the things you do on Christmas Eve is you go to a church and sing carols. It's part of just the tradition and the nuance and the vibe. And so that's why I think we can hold an attractional Christmas Eve service like we do every year, and we have over a 1,000 people come through the doors and pack this church for two services every year because it's still a kind of holdover from Christianized New England. And so there's still things that work like that, right? But in a post-Christian culture, you can't just say, come and see. You've got to go and tell. Increasingly, especially the new generations that are coming up that are sort of the fruit of that transition where they just don't even have the categories at all. We have to go and tell. Um, my daughter, uh, I'll get to brag a little bit, my daughter was uh, in uh, her, her class in high school and uh, they had to do this presentation. Um, have I told this story before? I'm kind of confused. Well, if I have, too bad. Too bad. I'll tell it twice because I'm a really proud dad. Anyway, my daughter in high school, she had to do this presentation on, um, uh, you know, everyone in the class had to do it on something you don't know about me, but that's really important. It shapes me into who I am. And so she decided to do it on her faith, my faith in Christ and the gospel. And so she's in her class, told about how the gospel affected her and how it shaped her and why that was important to her. And it was so interesting because then, then kids had to respond in class and these kids were responding to her, and they were saying things like, I've never met anyone for whom religion had any importance in their life, and it was interesting to meet you and hear your story. That's when you know you're in a post-Christian culture. When people say, I've never met anyone for whom religion is actually important. And like, wow, that's why we have to go and tell, why we can't just think that if we throw an event, people are going to come. And so when we want to reach out to people during the Super Bowl, rather than paying lots of dollars to have the Super Bowl shown in our church and getting barbecue and inviting everybody in, and then instead of listening to Katy Perry during the halftime show, we give a gospel presentation. Instead of that, come and see. Like, well, we should go to our homes and invite people to the Super Bowl. Or better, if you have a friend who invites you to the Super Bowl, go and hang out with them. And we need to go and tell. Plus, that, that approach is cheaper, too which you'll like as New Englanders. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper to go and tell than it is to come and see, and a lot less tiring. That's another problem with come and see. It's just exhausting. So much work to put things on. Just go and tell. Super, super, super easy, cheaper, and as we're going to see, more exciting. But it's not just that. Not only do, do we need a vision for the spread of the gospel, not only do the elders need to work on stuff like that, and not only do we need a philosophy of ministry that that sees the importance of going and telling in a post-Christian context. But ultimately, it just comes down to our hearts, doesn't it? Like the elders could have an awesome like five-year plan with that's like, you know, big, scary, audacious goals. In the next five years, we're going to plant 80,000 churches. You know, we could like do some crazy like dream and I could stand up here and preach sermons about different paradigms of ministry. But at the end of the day, question is, if the Lord says to me, Jeremy, go, am I willing to go? That's what matters. Are we all as a church not only praying, search me, O God, and know my heart, but also, here am I, send me. Whatever you want me to do, I'm your servant. That's the heart that we all need. 
You know, am I willing to go? I have to ask myself that, even as I preach this sermon to you. I, I really don't want to go, be honest. If, if I could retire at this church in like 25 years, I'd be really cool with that. That'd be great. You know, I love the windows, like I said. I love this church. I love you guys. I would love to be here. But I have to be ready. Lord, if you told me to go, would I go? Maybe the Lord's telling you to go somewhere. Perhaps the Lord is, uh, has laid on your heart to go. Maybe it's something like big and audacious, like go be a missionary in some other culture, some other place. Would you go? Would you even consider it? Or, or what if we did plant a church? Would you be willing to go to the church plant? And, or would you be like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I'm all for church planting. I'm, I'm not leaving. <laughs> like, okay, are you even open to the Lord leading you? Well, what about that, you know? Maybe that's where you're supposed to be. Or have we made our church into an idol and our, our comfort here into an idol? Or are we, is it laid down? Lord, I thank you for my church, but I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. Or maybe, maybe you've got some friends that you've been hanging out with and you've done this crazy thing like we've been talking about all year of saying, hey, would you ever like to read the Bible with me? And you've got two friends who aren't Christians and they're like, we both were willing to do that. And so you're like, wow, I could start a Bible study with these two non-Christians. The problem is I'm in two other Bible studies at church and that ministry and I'm really busy. I don't have time for another Bible study. Like maybe you need to not do four Bible studies at church. And you need to go hang out with those people and just do a little Bible study with them. You're like, I'm not, I can't do that. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not seminary trained. Look, at those people don't know anything about the Bible. They're going to think you're a genius. <laughs> like, oh, you know, they'll be saying things to you like, wow, I, I just don't think I could ever be like you. And you're like, what? You know, and it's all relative to where you're at in the, the journey. Just go do it. Or, or maybe, maybe you're a wicked introvert. Do we have any wicked introverts here? I know you won't raise your hand because you're introverts, but anyway. <laughs> you'd be like, um, yeah, I'm an introvert. I know people don't believe it when I say that, but uh, I'm, I'm an introvert who's paid to be an extrovert. So uh, I, I'm an introvert. I do love people, but I, just, you know, I need to get in my little cave and do my thing. But even if you're an introvert, like maybe God just has just put one person in front of you, right? That's all, that's all introverts can handle, like one person. Fine. Maybe God's put one person in front of you. They're like in your life and they won't go away. Maybe they're there for a reason. Maybe that's someone God has given you. That's where he's saying go to spend time with that person and to make space in your life so that you can connect regularly and intentionally in a no-strings-attached, loving relationship where you're praying for opportunities for the gospel. Maybe it's that kind of person. Maybe that person is there. I don't know. But it starts with what they did, prayer, Lord, what would you have us do? What would you have me do? Lord, use me. Here am I, send me. We've got time to do this. Let's do this real quick. Let's take a minute to pause the sermon. Boop. And uh, let's just pray for a minute. And like they did, let's just do what they were doing here. And here's what I want you to pray. Just pray silently by yourself. I want you to just pray to God. Here am I, send me. Ask the Lord, how, how do you want to use me? Maybe you already know, but you've just been like, I don't want to do it. Maybe you already have the face in front of you of the person God has put into your life. I don't know. But whoever it is, maybe you don't even know. And your prayer is like, I don't even know God. I don't even know where to start with this sermon. But here am I, send me. Let's just pray. 
And I'll, I'll close in about a minute, and then we'll keep on with the sermon. Oh Lord, I pray that you would give me some opportunities with my friend Mark and my friend Dave, my friend Jack. Lord, I pray that I have opportunities to talk about you with them. Lord, I pray with my brothers and sisters here. Here we are, send us. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us. We just open ourselves to you, and Lord, we want to be your servants. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so this is where it gets cool. Once we are willing to go wherever the Lord would have us, then the Spirit starts working. God not only sends us, but it's not like, all right, you go now, and good luck with that evangelism stuff. He sends us, and he supplies what we need through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only has a plan, but also every provision that we need to carry out the plan. The Spirit gives us the power to do this. And that's what we see in, from verses 4 to 12 is the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the mission that he sends Paul and Barnabas on. So let's pick up the story real quick. Verse 4, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. So Paul leaves and Barnabas leave from uh, uh, Antioch, and they go on about a 75-mile journey down to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean, and they go to the Jewish synagogues, and because Paul's a Jewish rabbi by training, and they have an opportunity to speak in the synagogues, and they're telling people that Jesus is the Messiah, that Christ was crucified for our sins and buried and rose on the third day, and now anybody who puts their faith in Jesus can be forgiven and reconciled to God, and they keep preaching this message and, uh, and then it, it, it succeeds, and, and news gets out. And then this, this interesting event happens in verses, uh, from verses 6 to 12. It's a, really, it's a cool story, a little bit crazy, a little bit wild, but it's fun. Look at verse 6. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, and there they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. In uh, Aramaic, Bar means son of, Right, so, um, so it's, this is son of Jesus. So in other words, his dad was, was Yeshua or Joshua or Jesus. That was his sort of given name. So that's, that's his uh, this false prophet. He's some kind of occult practitioner. Verse 7, he was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. And the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Eliamus the sorcerer, that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So the proconsul, the governor of the island, he hears about this, and he's like, well, I'm going to hear from these guys. He's open-minded. He's intellectually curious. So he says, well, come here, Paul and Barnabas. Tell me what you're talking about. But then he's got this advisor, like, you know, the advisors around the governor or whatever, and, and this guy is like a sorcerer, which sounds really weird to us, right? Could you imagine if, you know, next to gov- the governor of Massachusetts, there was a guy who was like the court, you know, sorcerer? We'd be like, what? You're paying $80,000 for like a tarot card reader? What? What is that? But you've got to remember the cultural context, right? 
This is a pagan culture. Greco-Roman society was totally soaked from top to bottom in supernaturalism. They believed in spirits and gods and demigods and Hercules and all the gods of Mount Olympus and all the spirits. And, and, and so to be able, if, if you're a sorcerer and you, and you could demonstrate some kind of ability to tap into the other side and get wisdom and guidance from the other side, in that worldview and in that culture, you would be seen as an asset, not as some like, you know, kind of freak on, on a late night uh, TV show or something. Uh, and so, so this guy was... He was an advisor. He was someone important. He had power and authority. And, uh, and, and so he's opposing the gospel. And this is what's going to happen. When we start to go, when we start to say, here am I, send me, and God puts doors in front of us, and we start walking through those doors, these two things are always going to happen. You're going to have opportunities, and you're going to have opposition. Always going to happen. There's going to be Interested people, open-minded people, curious people that God is stirring up, and then you're going to have other people who are just against it. Um, and and that's, that's always the case. Maybe not a sorcerer against you, maybe not a mage, uh, or maybe, who knows, you never know. Probably, though, in New England, it won't quite look like that. But you might have in New England, you might have um, the opposition of, of the, the uh, secular intellectual who you start talking about the Bible, and they're going, what? The Bible? You believe that? I mean, only unintelligent, you know, rednecks believe the Bible. Like, nope, come on, really? Hasn't science disproved the Bible a long time ago? And I, I don't believe anything in the Bible. It's full of contradictions. Oh, really? Like, like what? Well, I mean, I haven't read it, but I just know it's full of contradictions. And so people have these intellectual issues against the Bible. Or maybe it's moral objections. It's like, the Bible, Christianity... Isn't that chauvinistic, bigoted, homophobic, puritanical, narrow-minded? You believe that? How could you believe that? And so th- there can be opposition like that. And, and you may be trying to talk to someone about the faith, but maybe their friend or their spouse or their employer or something is putting pressure. And it, it, so there's always going to be these battles. And perhaps you, you hear me say that and you think, yeah, I know. That's why I'm scared to go. <laughs> I, I'm not ready to have those arguments. I'm not ready to, to go into the battle like that. You know, this is, this is scary. I know there's going to be opposition. That's why I don't want to go and open my mouth about Jesus, because they're going to ask me questions I can't answer. There's going to be all these problems. But the point of this story is that the Spirit of God is with us, and the Holy Spirit enables us to accomplish the mission that the Holy Spirit gives us. Yes, there are opposing spirits in the world, but they're nothing compared to the Holy Spirit. And we have the Holy Spirit. We have everything we need. We just need to open our mouths and trust the, the Spirit of God. That's the point of the story, because look what Saul does. Verse 9, this is when it gets kind of cool. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you're a child of the devil. You're not Bar-Jesus, you're Bar-Satan. You're the son of the devil. And an enemy of everything that's right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Why will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Then after he lays into him, he... he does this judgment miracle. He says, now the Lord's hand against you, verse 11, you're going to be blind, and for a time unable to see the light of the sun, and immediately he becomes blind, and he starts groping about. Wow! God's spirit is stronger than the spirits of this world. Now, what's the moral of the story for us? Is the moral of the story that as you go out there, if anyone opposes you about Jesus, you should just curse them with blindness? Like, hey, don't test me. 
All right, listen, just, you need to back off. Okay, fine. Zzz, like, told you. Don't mess with the gospel. Like, no, that would be cool. Don't get me wrong. I would like that, perhaps. And God can do that. God can do that. But probably, I, I think the point of the story is that for us to take away, especially, is that the Holy Spirit is greater and that God can overcome. God gives words. God works things out. As you're praying and seeking to be used by the Lord in other people's lives, the Holy Spirit does things and answers prayer and works in dramatic ways and coincidences happen and things happen. You know, the Holy Spirit is real. And, and maybe one of the reasons we, we don't experience more of the Holy Spirit's power in our lives is because we're not out there with the gospel. Because if you look at the pattern in the book of Acts, when do most of the miracles in the book of Acts happen? It's when they're out there preaching the gospel and they need not only the message, but they need God's power to back it up, right? And so I think a lot of times we may not experience the power of the Holy Spirit in, in maybe more dramatic ways because we're, we're saying, come and see, come and see, instead of going out there into the, you know, the, the live fire drill of real life where we're really dealing with people. And when you're out there, it's scary. I mean, that's another thing about the attractional model. It's safe. Come and see. Oh, two people came and saw. Okay, great. Well, as long as one, if one of them was saved, all that money was worth it, we tell ourselves. No, no, go out there. Then you're risking something. Now you're out in the world. Now you're opening your mouth in uncomfortable places. And now you're going to start praying. Oh, Lord. Give me the words. I don't know what I'm, I'm way out of my depth here. And now the spirit works because it's not you. It's the power of God that's needed. And so it causes us to rely on the power of God to do the work of God. And we begin to pray very differently. You know, that's a different kind of, it's a different kind of prayer to pray, Lord, could you please bring more people to this thing versus Lord, I'm about to talk to a hardcore atheist. Help me. That's a different urgency to that as we rely upon the Spirit's power. And God does it. God silences this, this guy and, uh, wow, Sergius, uh, whatever his name is, Paulus, believes. Amazing. God worked. If God wants to save the proconsul, he's going to save the proconsul and he's going to use us. It's an amazing thing. But there's another, I think, and I'll just close with this, another little glimmer of hope here. Check this out. Look, it's so interesting. God can do anything, and, and there's a little hint of it here. So you got this sorcerer, right? He's a, a Jewish background. He's opposed to the gospel, okay? But then a judgment comes upon him where he goes blind, and he has to be led around by the hand. Does that sound familiar. That's what happened to Paul. He was a Jewish opponent of the gospel, very hostile, arresting Christians, throwing them in jail. And then Jesus confronted him, and he went blind for a time, and he had to be led by the hand to Damascus. So there's an interesting little dynamic going on here where the same thing happened to Paul and Paul was converted, and now here's Paul preaching the same judgment against this bar Jesus. 
And there's a part of me, the curious part of me, that always wants to know more, that's like, I wonder if Bar-Jesus eventually became a Christian because he went through what Saul went through. I don't know. You know I wonder, will I see Bar-Jesus someday in heaven? Will he be there because he went through this? Or maybe he won't. I don't know. But there's, there's an interesting contrast there in a glimmer of hope. And it's good to know that, that even the most hostile critics are not beyond the saving power of God. Do, do any of you in your lives have a just really hostile critic of the gospel who, who is n- not just like not open, but they are openly against the gospel? Does anyone have anyone like that in their life? Don't count God out. God can save anybody. We've got to keep praying. Who knows what the Lord will do? And just a final word. You know, most of this sermon, if you've been here, has been kind of directed at Christians in the church and thinking about our calling as, as Christians in the gospel. But um, if you're here this morning and maybe uh, you're not there, like you're like, well, I'm not a Christian. This has been very interesting to learn about how Christians think and what the Bible teaches. But, but maybe that's not where you're at. And I guess I would just say to you this morning, be careful of the danger of arrival. Be careful of thinking that you've got all the answers, that you have arrived. Now, there's two characters here for you, the proconsul and the sorcerer. And the proconsul heard all these things. He heard Paul and Barnabas, and he said, I, I want to hear more. He's an intelligent man. He's open-minded. And he's like, you know, there's more to learn. And maybe this is true, maybe this isn't, but I want to learn. Come in here. And then you have this other person who's not a Christian, and He's opposed. He's against it. No matter, you can't convince me because he's arrived and he knows it all. And I guess I would, I would caution you too against the danger of arrival. I'd, I'd encourage you to be open-minded and to seek the Lord. And I just want you to know that there is a Savior, that Jesus came on a mission. He came to earth to die for sinners like me to forgive me of my sins and to keep working in me and he rose again so that there's power in Jesus to overcome sin and to live a life that pleases God, that these things are real. I just encourage you to be open-minded, not to think you've arrived. Maybe you need to pray a prayer. Perhaps your prayer isn't, Lord, here am I, send me, but your prayer needs to be, Lord, are you there? Are you there? Come to me. I want to know you if you're there. That's the prayer of a person who has not yet arrived, but's on a good path. Let's pray. Oh Lord, again we pray, here we are, send us. Oh God, we want to be used of you in whatever way you would lead to uh, see people in the South Shore of Boston our friends, our neighbors. This, this isn't just an area we're praying for. Lord, we're praying for people we love, people who are dear to us. Oh God, would you work in them and work through us. Fill us up with the Holy Spirit. Help us to have the courage to go and tell, to walk beyond the, the safe walls of the church, built up and encouraged and fed by the church, but then sent out, deployed for mission. Oh Lord, help us to do that. And God, I do pray for um, anyone here who, who's questioning, who's doubting, who's searching. Maybe, maybe they've heard all this Jesus stuff their whole lives, but is it real? Do they know it's true? God, I pray that you would reveal to them yourself 
so that they might know the power of God and not just the words of a preacher. And so, Lord, I pray, reveal yourself to us all today. We ask this in Jesus' name.